in writing the wrong way where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. So, and I'm talking to Ren Bryan today about a topic that I frankly don't know that much about. In fact, <laughs> I'm sort of considered the authority against this topic in some ways or some circles because I'm best known for a book called Clockfire, uh, which was a series of 77 plays that would be impossible to produce. And so I'm sort of, in many ways, well known as a uh, person against the theater or writing against the theater. I'm not personally against the theater, but the book is sort of, you know, a challenge to the theater. And so I wanted to bring on Ren to talk about the theater and writing for the theater, maybe in a slightly more normative way, um, uh, because it is an area where I get a lot of questions and I don't necessarily have a lot of experience. Uh, and even, you know, I'm sometimes thought of as an adversarial figure, although I don't really think I am. I mean, it's just a cool idea for a book uh, in many respects. <laughs> but uh, uh, Ren, could you talk a little bit about uh, sort of your background in the theater and sort of how you got into writing for the theater and, and your interest in writing for the theater? You know, why the theater, I suppose, is my sort of core question to you. Uh, that's a good question. Um because I kind of wish I wanted to write for something else or do something else with my life other than this. Um, but hey, uh, it <laughs> caught me at a fairly young age. Um, like as a kid, and I think it was just because there's a lot of community theater around. I grew up in Whitehorse, Yukon, which is a small city. It's a city, but it's small. Um, so we didn't really get a lot of professional theater uh, up there until I was my later years, actually. But uh, went to see community theater and um, I saw like friends in it and stuff and it just seemed really cool. And like, so I've kind of always loved the theater and been attracted to it. Uh, and there was like a great high school program called the Music Art and Drama Program that uh, from grade nine to 12 you could be in and you created theater and you did like haunted houses and winter shows for the kids and stuff. And it's actually very fringy. So it was a great learning ground to do, learn how to do that. Um, and in that context, I explored acting, I explored design, and I did explore writing as well. And um, had always been interested in telling stories, I think. And um, definitely explored it and caught the theater bug. And so I went to school for it, I went to university theater and film because I didn't know at the time because I was drawn to both. They're both very similar in a lot of ways, but they are and they aren't. And I think actually the pandemic has shown us just how strong that difference is. And uh, I hope people are reflecting, I think on, yeah, they're similar, but there's also very strong differences. Um, but at university, I actually never took a playwriting course. Um, I did everything else because correctly in some ways I figured writing was something I can learn how to do on my own. And I wanted to learn or try to see, am I an actor? Am I a director? Am I a designer? Am I a filmmaker? Am I an editor? So I took all those courses in that to sort of eliminate. Um, so I graduated in 2013. By uh, the end of 2015, I had eliminated everything else and was like, nah, I'm a writer. <laughs> uh, you know, the story I like telling, because it is just funny in retrospect, is when I was the last thing I was exploring before landing on writing was directing for theater because I'd kind of eliminated film as an, as an interest. And um, it felt like more work to go find a suitable royalty-free play to get my hands on to direct. 
than to just write my own play, which is hysterical in retrospect. Uh, There's a couple interesting things in what you've just sort of said and laid out in your path there that I, I kind of recognized from my experience because a lot of people don't realize that I actually originally went to school when I went into my first university. My idea was um, that I was going to, you know, get into, you know, theater and acting. And I actually, you know, took a theater class. I took a bunch of business classes, a bunch of theater classes, and I quickly dropped out of both. Um, uh, I wish in retrospect that I'd stayed in business classes, but um, the theater classes I got out of for just a really particular reason, which is um, that I just realized I don't have the body awareness to be a good actor. Like, I just don't know what my face looks like without, you know what I mean? Like, and I know you can develop that stuff, but I just could see the long, hard slog of it a little bit. I decided just kind of to focus more on the writing side of it. Um, but I also started, uh, although I still, you know, uh, really love the theater in a lot of ways, especially more kind of the fringier side of the theater, as you say, there were two things I really was starting to get frustrated uh, with when I looked at theater and I, when I went to the theater, and these are the sort of the things that laid the groundwork for my kind of clockfire book, which was, I, I started to get very frustrated that I felt the, the, um, the theater, it seems a weird complaint, but I was always very annoyed that they never acknowledged that the audience was there. Uh, or if they acknowledged the audience is there, it was often kind of a facile engagement. So, but I would see these really great plays. Um, I remember seeing one, uh, it was actually a, a, a zombie attack play at the fringe. I forget the name of it. Um, but it was um, a really excellent play where it had a bit of a more serious meta engagement. And so those meta engagements I found were very like touch and go. Like I'd see some theater where they just were impressive and blew me away. Another theater where it just was like a, a bad joke. And once the audience responded to them, it didn't work anymore. Uh, you know, uh, but the other thing that I just felt like was kind of, you know, frustrating to me about the theater was just the same thing that uh, I think is just an integral part of the theater, which is that you have to deal with, the logistics of the theater all the time. Um, and I foolishly <laughs> now in retrospect, I, I said, it was like, I could do the opposite tack of yours. I was like, I'm going to move into film and, and screenwriting um, as if there were less logistics there. There's, you know, in fact, more logistics and you need more money and so on and so forth. But uh, I just didn't really see it at the time. And of course, you know, uh, but you touch on a thing that I think is really interesting and that I'd like to get into a bit more, which is that, you know, writing for film and writing for the theater, it has certain overlaps in the Venn diagram, but there are some very, very serious uh, differences. Um, but I'd like to kind of get a little bit more into like some of the specifics of that, especially. Um, so one thing I just kind of wonder is when you're writing for, uh, for the theater, it may seem like an odd question, but do you move your body around like as you're writing those that like a theater script, like I find with screenwriting, I'm always kind of trying to stand and deliver the lines or like move into a position. Like I have to describe how body movements work. And so I struggle with two things in screenwriting. And I kind of am curious how you approach these things in the, in, in writing, you know, theatrically. One, I wonder always like how much description or instruction should I give actors? Uh, and two, I just wonder like, 
okay, does the body and space move this way? <laughs> you know, which is something you have to more seriously consider in the theater because in, in, in screenwriting, you can cheat it. But in the theater, they're there. So I'm kind of curious how you account for, I guess, like the body itself in a physical space in sort of writing. Like, are there things you've learned or that you try to do or that you even just find frustrating or difficult when you're trying to kind of put together a script? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a great question. And I guess first I need to say every playwright is different. So, um, how I work is not going to be how others work. Cause I know that some who, who do walk around and talk to themselves and are quite physical, I don't tend to be, and this is partially because actually, I think one of the key differences between film and theater is I think theater by and large has been moving away from doing very specific stage directions. So I never actually, or try not to say the actor picks up a mug and drinks from it. Unless it's like very important to the scene or like sometimes I'll throw in a like they drink or something, but I try to be very not specific with it and very sparing with it to allow the actors to do it. And there's multiple reasons for this. And, and part of it is because I personally believe as a playwright that I want to leave space for the other artists to make their own choices and acknowledge that, you know, well, I can think of stuff sitting alone in my apartment, but when they're in this space actually enacting it, they're going to have their own ideas that are probably going to be way better than anything that I can come up with. Um, but you can't really do that in film. And I think his film is much more it's weird to say, but I feel like the writing of it is a much more visual medium and the whole thing is a bit more visual than theater because theater, it is visual, but you do have, like you say, those constraints of you have a space and you have a stage and you can do anything on that stage in front of the audience, but you don't have the time in film, right? Where you can completely change locations. You can, and you can get those super close-ups. And like theater can sometimes try to do that. I've seen uh, plays try to do that with projections and they have a, a camera on stage and they're filming close-ups of the actors that then get projected on the screen. But you still are dealing with that whole image and the audience is removed from that visualization. So that's why as a playwright, I, I really try not to get caught up in those details. And so in that way, I don't uh, move around a lot. What I do do is I read aloud in my apartment all the time. And like, as I'm writing, and this is why I actually, I'm not a playwright who does um, writes in cafes. I know plenty of playwrights who do or like to write in public, but I don't because I'm going to end up talking to myself and <laughs> I don't want other people to have to hear that. Um, especially because, yeah, it ends up being like where I try to play both characters. And so I'm like, I'm trying to move really fast between the lines, uh, which only goes so far, but I think it, it helps in, in that revising stage and that drafting stage as I'm trying to figure out the rhythms and things like that. There's, uh, an interesting kind of comparison with screenwriting there where I think one of the th things that is the same about both of the mediums, like a script uh, for a film or in a script for the theater is that on in both examples as a writer you're really constructing a blueprint uh, document and as you say you have to kind of really be mindful of where am I going to leave space 
or make sure I leave an, enough space like for these other artists to come and have room to fill the space like with their interpretation and make their choices. At the same time, of course, there's certain things you need to be in control of, you know, or work you have to do as a writer that, you know, it isn't uh, in many ways fair to make the actors do, but another, but you, so you got to have a level of control, but not be too controlling. Uh, and especially it's a, it, it's a tough balancing act to begin with, but I think it's especially hard in the early stages of a project where maybe you don't know who that actor is going to be. You don't know what actress is going to be saying these lines. So you got to kind of write for a person, uh, but also um, trust this person that doesn't exist yet <laughs> to do a lot of things when, you know, you don't necessarily have that trust relationship because you don't know who they are. Uh, at the same time though, even though they're both blueprint documents, uh, I think the difference uh, is in the theater, unlike the screenplay, like the theater script, unlike the screenplay, uh, the theater script is a literary document uh, and a screenplay is not. Uh, this is something I really kind of point out when I'm teaching screenwriting is like, as a screenwriter, you are not writing literature. Uh, there's an artistry to it and you're, but like, you're just literally not producing a document that has literary qualities and is meant as a fixed literary document. Whereas a, a theater script might be published as you say, and it might um, you know, be sold uh, again and again uh, as that published document. And it would you know, be envisioned and brought to life and altered and changed by in every production perhaps, or even every night of the same production. Um, but it really does live as a literary piece of literature in, in a manner of speaking that screenplays don't. So like the description, for example, that you find in a theater uh, script, although it does not necessarily need to be quote unquote well-written, there is like a way in which at some point it's meant uh, ideally to serve like double duty as something you could read. Um, whereas for screenplays, it's just about clarity uh, and function. And, you know, if there's, if it sounds really, if it's really well-written <laughs> piece of description, it's almost a, an impediment in a screenplay. Like once there's a poetic quality to your description uh, or your action or, or, or anything that's not dialogue, it actually is now not functioning in a screenplay properly because you could interpret it more than one way. And that's not what it's for. Um, whereas in the theater, it seems to me, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the theater, it seems to me like things like action and dialogue, all those sort of non, not, or not action and description, all the non-dialogue text uh, is meant to have at least some level of uh, poetic quality uh, and be a bit more open to interpretation than say a screenplay description would have to be. Yeah, I think we've definitely moved into that direction. Um, I do think his, historically it's, it's gone through some changes because a lot of the published plays that we actually see from you know the earliest 20th century, Tennessee Williams is the favorite example, um, is that those stage directions are actually the like the production notes and like the stage manager writing at the blocking. So it's not necessarily that Tennessee Williams was like, Laura walks across the stage. Cause the, like, if you read Tennessee Williams, it's so like, this is what the actors do all the time. And like, here's a very long description of what the stage looks like. And I do believe some of that was Tennessee Williams, but some of it wasn't. And so 
I found it interesting when I was taking uh, theater classes and acting classes in particular is that often we got the advice to cross out any stage directions anytime you get a scene to not even read them to just cross them out uh, which now I'm like Duh, don't do that because <laughs> I think contemporary playwrights we still need to write stage directions like we can't hand you a script that's just entirely dialogue and so we are working to make those stage directions meaningful and helpful and and yeah literary and adding to the experience of reading the script and uh, I, I did get this because I was kind of stuck I think uh, initially doing I'm only going to write stage directions if I need to tell the actors to move and and that's it otherwise I'm not doing it but then I heard uh, Kevin Loring he's a Canadian playwright uh, speaking at a panel and he talked about nah have fun with your stage descriptions be poetic do whatever you need to do to describe the feeling that you're going for and so now that's really what I try to work on in, in stage directions is the feeling and so it's like you can interpret that however you want the actors the directors designers um, and I have found that freeing and hopefully more helpful because I did find part of the issue with I think in the theater industry today is we've fallen into this pattern of three to four week rehearsal periods which is really short um I believe in Europe they do longer they do five weeks six weeks I think I was reading a, a book on directing and uh in in America in the the 20th century and they had like eight weeks sometimes so now we're trying to do it in three weeks and that is not enough time for actors to memorize, learn their blocking and, and figure out what you're trying to say in the script and, and get all of the subtlety that, that you as a play right now, because you've been living with these characters for years, usually by the point that it sees life. And so I was finding that it's like, yeah, you, you don't know what, why I wanted, I described how this character moves because you haven't had time to really delve into that. And so now I think, okay, I want to help the actors, the directors, the designers figure out what the internal world of this is as quickly as possible. And so I use stage directions for that. I feel like screenwriting has kind of moved in that direction a little bit as well, where, you know, there was a trend in screenwriting for a little while. I don't know. I don't read a lot of screenplays these days, so I'm not sure how, the trend sits right now, but there was a trend for quite a while there that people were really getting flowery in the scripts uh, because of Quentin Tarantino and people were reading Quentin Tarantino scripts and they were noticing like how uh, literary and novel-esque they were in terms of the direction and uh, that he would put into the script and so on. Uh, and, you know, they'd have these, you know, all the stuff in the script that traditionally you don't, you don't write things in a script that can't be filmed. Right. Uh, but of course, you know, he would fill a script with all this, you know, stage direction, description and so on that you just couldn't film. And it was just meant to kind of assist the reader. Uh, what people forgot, and people just started copying this. So what people forgot, of course, was that Quentin Tarantino was directing his own scripts. Uh, and so Quentin Tarantino knows what Quentin Tarantino means and doesn't require a proper, sensible direction. And what Quentin Tarantino cares about is this person reading the script who is like Quentin is writing for one or for two audiences, himself and someone who's going to give him millions of dollars. 
And he just doesn't want that guy to put the script down. Um, and so it's a very different way of writing that isn't necessarily a, a blueprint and isn't necessarily something that like people need to, should be copying. Like there's a level at which, you know, if you don't have millions of dollars, you got to think about that person who does and what do they want to, what's going to be fun for them in a script. But you also need to kind of think a bit further down the line of like, who, how, who's going to use this script? And will I drive them insane? Uh, because I've given them impossible directions and now they got to like spend five years figuring out what I said on page 53 and whether they need to even make that up. Like, uh, people forget sometimes that, in, in, you know, somebody has to make that thing. Like, like I, in theater also, like perhaps, you know, if you describe a poster on the wall in the background, like somebody's going to go make that poster and, you know, maybe you were just doing it for tone and you don't actually even care what the poster is, um, you know, in, in which case, you know, you need to kind of be mindful of the other people being involved in the production side of this thing. Um, so I feel like um, what I think is interesting about theater writing is it has a lot of those similarities, but as you say, like it's, it's sort of using one real difference I think is that it uses time differently. Like in, in, the theory you really just have on time unfolding in a certain respect, like uh, that I think it, it isn't necessarily the same that the film, like the, the simple um, illustration is typically in film, you don't see people walk across rooms. Um, uh, you just cut, cut, cut. Uh, and when you do see somebody walk from one side of the room to the other, it's actually usually a, a, a very, um, it's very unusual. Like in there will be blood. There's a really long shot where the character run, you know, this, this thing bursts into flames and this character is running from one part of the field to the other to get to it. And he just shows you the whole run. He makes you, you know, it's one single shot. He makes you follow that character uh, just so that you feel with the character, how long it's taking to get there. Um, whereas, but that's completely bizarre in uh you know, film, whereas in the theater, you know, you really do have a body in space and that's some of the specialness of the experience that we're kind of, we're sort of always there experiencing how they're going through it. Even if you're jumping from like time to time in the story. Um, so I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts about that a little bit, like how time works maybe in the theater or how to play with time or even just making the audience wait for things. I think is something that is very different. And I would, are, I would suspect the theater audience has a bit more tolerance for waiting, if that makes sense. You're waiting for information, you know, letting somebody sit and be silent. It's something that seems that you can do in the theater that you kind of, the audience just doesn't have the toleration in film in the same way. I'm thinking, and I'm not sure, like maybe I should start thinking about it more, but as a playwright, I'm not sure that I think about it that much. I think it's because those are things to feel out in the room and in the space. And that's something that the actors and the directors will feel out. One way it kind of does make into a script often though is, uh, you know, beat, the word beat, right? And so I'm really always really interested in how people use the word beat or don't use it, if that makes sense, uh, in both screenplays and theater. So I mean, I, it sounds like a weird topic, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the word beat and maybe just explain to people who don't know what that is. 
uh, and what it means in you know theater and screenwriting. And then maybe if you could talk a little bit about whether you use it, how you use it, and so on. Because I think it's a really interesting, unique part of this writing for the film and theater that people don't necessarily know or think about if they if they haven't done that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm at a, a juncture, I guess, in my writing where I'm exploring actually not using beat. Um, I used to use it all the time. Uh, but yeah, a beat, people have like slightly different descriptions of it. Um, but usually it's, it's just a moment and it, it's just a moment of silence, <clears throat> but it's not a pause. It's not lengthy. Um, but usually it's just that, that moment of, of silence, I guess, but there is usually a bit of attention to it too. I feel is what it's sort of indicating. And, and usually it, it's put after the character with the previous line has said something to, to take another character back or that's made them have to shift something. And so it's often, I think, indicating a shift. Um, and and like, this is where you can get, and I think I was overusing beats sometimes because I, I know in a play analysis, you can also talk about a beat as a, a section of script. And it's while the characters are talking about the same thing and then beat and then they switch topics or they move on to something else. So I think the funny thing about that word is that I think everyone has a slightly different idea of what that is. And it depends who you're talking to. It depends on what context you're talking about it. But in playwriting, I, I used to use it as um, the other character has said something that's made the other character need to take a moment or has made them have to switch tactics or something like that. But I'm currently off of using it just again to try to go, you know what, the actors are going to feel this out. And maybe there doesn't need to be silence there. Cause I think it puts pressure for there to be a bit of silence. And it's like, maybe that's not the best thing. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to want to, and I don't want to limit, I think, the ideas. And, and I think this is also part of me trying to make sure as much as I can that actors and directors. Uh, take my stage directions seriously because I think if you overuse something they're gonna go ah whatever it just uses beat all the time we don't have to do the beats all the time and so I want to if I do use it because I think I'm, I'm exploring yes yeah, like okay maybe I use it once or twice in a script that it's really important that it's like I really am pretty sure there's no way you could do this fast if you do it fast you're gonna miss something so that hopefully they'll go oh never uses beats used it here we're going to pay attention to that and we're going to explore what she's trying to say in doing that I don't know if this is going to work or not but that's currently what I'm exploring in my writing to get away from using it overusing it yeah just to kind of follow up on something you said there <clears throat> there's a way that I, I, it's one of those words that I find kind of annoying in the sense that people use it in two ways like you say so like one way that we use the word beat always is if we're talking about narrative structure uh just for people listening a beat is an action reaction pattern so you know if we start talking about something that's it you know now we're in a beat when we switch topics or the conversation changes direction in some you know structural way now we're in a new beat so you can just break down a scene beat by beat in that like sense of its narrative structure but also uh people will write the word beat uh like ren saying like 
and so it might look something like this, you know, Sarah says, uh, how's Johnny? And Tom says, and then it goes beat. And then Johnny says, he's fine. Of course, the beat now indicates uh, to everyone reading the script and hopefully to the audience, right? That like that split second of like hesitation means he's lying um, and just trying to not have her notice. Um, and then you get into the question, like, does she notice and so on and so forth. Uh, so like people will just write the word beat into a script often in that way. Um, uh, whether they should or not, I guess, is the other question uh, that you're kind of getting into here. Like, is it better to kind of do that or not do it and so on and so forth. But that is sort of the way that word will function typically in scripts, although it is unfortunately also used to describe this narrative structure. Um, I don't know how that word got applied into narrative structure as well, but it has. Um, something that kind of this starts to move towards a little bit and where you might you know write a bunch of beats potentially uh, in a script is when writing monologues, you know, I think one real difference between one other real simple difference between film and theater, uh, I think, is how they handle dialogue. So in film, of course, dialogue is very, very short relative to the theater usually. Uh, and certainly there's a tolerance in the theater for speeches that you don't have in film. Um, you maybe get one speech in a whole in a, in a film. Uh, whereas in a theater, you know, uh, I think just generally speaking, you have more play there as an author and the audience has a bit more expectation that there's going to be moments in the story uh, when people are just going to talk more um, or maybe give longer speeches or, or even just give soliloquies, you know, talking to themselves or talking to the audience in that way. Um, uh, or uh, perhaps, you know, we have even on the extreme end, a play that just is a soliloquy, like a, a monologue, uh, which we don't really see in film so much. I mean, you might find an example here or there, but it isn't its own real, in a, in a theater, that's a real class of play. Uh, so I'm curious to know just your sort of thoughts on writing dialogue, or even if you have tips on writing dialogue for people, and then just kind of extending that out. Um, what do you think is different or interesting or special about monologues or, and soliloquies in, in the theater? I think, interestingly enough, in contemporary theater, I think we're moving away from monologues and soliloquies. You know, Shakespeare gets to do soliloquies, but the rest of us aren't allowed. Um, I've got some issues with Shakespeare uh, veneration um, in theater. But uh, yeah, because I, I feel that you do these days get questioned about monologues. Um, and soliloquies if you put them in a play that's not a one-person play one-person plays are the exception and they're still very it's a big uh, area that I think is going to just get bigger because of the pandemic because it's not really attractive to like great we can have one person on stage and they're completely socially distanced uh let's do it and uh which is really cool because it is I think you're right a very unique aspect of theater that you you don't see in film I, I'm having a hard time thinking of one. I'm sure there are, but it's certainly not common and I think difficult for film to, to do. Um, so it is a very, and it's getting actually down to the, the simplest form of, of theater, which is storytelling, right? With the one person show. 
And so I think what person shows can really explore that and can be very powerful in that way. But that said, I think monologues are still used a lot these days to explore a character. Uh, actually, Yvette Nolan in a workshop I did with her did a, a great thing. I, I think I had come in with a monologue and she was like, cool, um, make it a scene now. And uh, it was actually a great exercise that I, I've used again, because it's like, cool, because in the monologue, you can get into, okay, what is the character really thinking? But then it's like in the scene, the, what they're thinking becomes the background, but it's like, when does it come up? And that's where theater, I think, is really interesting. And I guess this is me in a roundabout way getting to my tip about dialogue is being aware of what the subtext is. What is the character not saying? What are they struggling not to say? Or what are they struggling to communicate? but doing well at communicating uh, helps the dialogue just happen, I think. And, and I don't want to be glib about that, but it um, knowing, and I don't think you should get caught up in this because I, I think you can get caught up in what does the character want? What's their action? I don't think you should get too caught up in that, but just thinking about who they are and, and what, why are they having this conversation uh, helps get that dialogue out there. So I guess that's my tip for dialogue. And I don't know that I have any brilliant ideas about writing monologues because I'm not sure that any, eh, I guess there was one play I had, well, two plays that monologues made it on stage, but those were ones that I wrote and directed myself. So no one was there to dissuade me from doing it. So I don't know that it counts. I like that exercise of taking a monologue and turning it into a scene because what's interesting about that transition is um, of course, to have a scene, you need more than one person uh, on stage in, in that respect. And then what's interesting about that is if it's in, in a two-person scene or, or there's two or more people in the scene, you get to have the other person present the philosophical or thematic opposite. Uh, and so they can hash out in the subtext, you know, like, a kind of argument almost between two thematic ideas where you can, of course, you can do that in a, in a monologue where a character is conflicted and, you know, going back and forth on something. But I think it's just, it's a bit harder to maybe get across a, or, or, or to make dramatic. Then of course it just sort of automatically starts to become dramatic in a scene where you know, two people are in, in, entering into a conflict going kind of back and forth on a subtextual level or or what have you so it, it's a really interesting uh, piece of advice and i think a really interesting exercise that uh yeah you know it seems really um worthwhile uh for people you know who are trying to elevate their uh work and when they're writing or editing even uh yeah it's really interesting the other thing i'm just i wonder if you could talk a bit more about the one act play or one person plays though one, one thing i think is interesting so where i would argue you do see uh one act or one person stories in film like kind of these long extended feature length monologues uh is comedy specials i think comedy specials have weirdly become uh this sort of film answer to the you know, one, one act, one person play, particularly if you move into a more cinematic one, like, um, you know, Bo Burnham's uh, Inside, or 
even if you're looking at um, something more unusually structured, like uh, Neil Brennan did a, uh, one, I forget the name of the sun. I think it's called three mics, but he had like three microphones on stage and he was kind of go different ones for different uh, topics uh, or threads, you know, thematic threads kind of running through the special. Um, so I don't think people tend to think of those uh, like comedy specials as feature films, um, but in many respects they are. And they, I think in some ways have become kind of the answer to this uh, kind of one act or, or, or even one person, you know, multiple act uh, plays. So I, but I'm kind of curious uh, to just maybe hear a bit more about what you think is good and not good about the one person play. Logistically, as you point out, it's, it's something that is maybe simpler and easier to get produced for, you know, obvious reasons, but I'm curious what else you find you think is attractive or unattractive to you about uh, the one person play. What a great question. Cause I, I do actually, I know it's interesting cause we talk a lot in theater. I think about the one person play and, and some people are really just like, oh, if I see another one person play, I'm going to lose it. Um, and, uh, but I actually went through a phase even at the fringe where I almost ex didn't exclusively watch one person plays, but I was really drawn to them. So I do think there's something very compelling about it. And I think it is really getting to have a story be woven in front of you. There's something very, that can be so beautiful and so profound uh, about that, that I think highlights the storytelling. And I think allows, it gives theater a little bit more space, I think, to play with time and to go back in time and forward in time and have different times where you can do that with multiple actors, but it becomes logistically hard and you, it's hard not to get caught up in long transitions, um, which is something that theaters do try to avoid um, is uh, we need to make transitions interesting if we're going to have them. And uh, if there's too, too many, it can get really stressful and it can also break up a play and break up an audience's attention. But in a one person play, you, you can do that. Um, Martin Dockery is very good at doing this. Um, if we do the fringe again, I recommend going to see his work because he is very good at um, doing those different threads. And I think for me, for one person play to really work well, it's to have all these threads introduced and then you, you start to see how they're crossing. And at the end, when it's all tied together, you go, whoa, okay. That really drove towards this point that touched on something really profound or interesting, but it made me laugh along the way. It made me feel sad along the way. And we, we got there. So I think that's, what's really beautiful about one person shows. I think at their worst, it, it becomes just someone talking and can feel un unrooted in something and can feel a little bit like, Hey, why do I care about what you're saying? So that's where I think they can, and they can get a little boring and also, you know, when it's overdone and I think also just overdone the sense of not, oh, everyone's doing it. So I do it. But in the sense of you start to see so much that then you, you do become more critical. And 
that's actually something I find very sad about theater. And I, I think you get this in film and probably in reading in all art forms, right? Is, is when you're younger, it's easier to be impressed and blown away. But you know, once you're blown away, it then gets harder to get that next feeling of blown away. But I think, you know, we're all, anyone who's really interested in art is a little bit of a junkie in that way. We're like, oh, what's, what's the next thing that's gonna blow me away? And so, yeah, once you've been blown away by some one person shows, then the next you see, you're like, well, it wasn't as good as that one. My thing I always say is my family, you know, who aren't writers, are always like they 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 always give me books uh, for like Christmas or my birthday or whatever, right? And because uh, they think, oh, you know, John likes books. He likes any book. And what I would always it was hard to explain to them is like, no, because I like books so much, it means I hate every book. I hate almost every book. Like <laughs> I don't want any of these books. You know. Uh, I like books less than the average person as a group, uh, but I like individual books more than anyone else, you know? Uh, and as you say, once you find that thing that blows you away, it's different, but you know, it, it gets harder and harder, uh, ironically, uh, to be impressed. I, I think of that with horror, because I love horror so much. And my, you know, uh, my daughter and my wife, uh, Jessie, she, um, she can't watch horror movies. She's too scared. And I always like laugh about like, you know, you're ironically the perfect audience for a horror movie, you know, but because I sit there and I'm like, yeah, that's scary. You know, like that's my reaction, uh, right? I'm not screaming and terror running away, but that's what they want uh, for me to do. Um, what's kind of interesting about some of the things you said about the one act play and the kind of strengths of them, or the one person play, I should say, and the strengths of them is that, you know, I, and I think this nicely illustrates the difference between the mediums. In screen, uh, in a screenplay or in a in film, to get those same effects, interestingly, and that same you know tone and sense, and to, to accomplish a lot of those same artistic ends, strangely, you have to move away from one person and into one location. It's like the kind of equivalent for the artistic effect of a, uh, or how you can accomplish a lot of those artistic aims in film is by by restricting the audience to one location. And not jumping around in time uh, and having multiple characters. And that's where you get this sort of sense of closure and closeness and, you know, all, all these sorts of interesting. Uh, and, and, you know, that kind of one location story has become its own little genre in and of itself, um, where they might take time to get to the location or they might get out of it at one point, but otherwise we're sort of trapped there. Um, and now this drama is unfolding and is really more about these people involved and the revelations and how things turn and twist and um, alter become more sort of impressive or surprising when you have that unity or those three unities, I guess, as the case uh, may be uh, in film. Whereas in the theater, um, you know, it, it just is a different set of operations that gets you to that place. Um, I really appreciate you talking about some of the stuff and I'm curious before I let you go, uh, what the, um, what sort of is your, the thing you like the least, uh, and like the most about the theater these days, I just have to turn my alarm off. That's my alarm to go get ready and grab my kid. So apologies for that, but, uh, I want to hear what you have to say about this first. Uh, do, do you mean theater productions or... I would suppose at whatever you like, you know, theater productions or scripts. Yeah. Um, 
personally, I'm a little, and this is just where I'm at right now. And I think I, I go through cycles of how I feel about things. Well, A, well, pandemic, I'm just sick of digital theater and more specifically uh, theater that's filmed and it's a film and it's just a bad film. Um, but that aside, I'm going to talk, I think, pre-pandemic of when I was seeing stuff. Uh, I am a bit tired of uh, kitchen sink dramas. Um, I think Canadian theater especially is very attracted to those. And I I can't even retain them in my memory. I just don't remember them. I see them and go, okay, that was all right. And it's not even a, oh, that was bad. It was just, uh, eh. What do you mean by and kitchen it, sink I, dramas? I'm not familiar with that term. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, and I'm actually kind of getting a little bit from from film and that movement in the, the 50s in, in Britain there. Um, it's dramas that are often it's it's in a home. Often it's in a kitchen, <laughs> it's called kitchen sink dramas, but it's not always, sometimes it's in the living room or whatever. And it's, it's one set and it's about some family issues mm. usually. Sure, sure. And I think those were really important at a time when, you know, thinking the theater, the history of theater and, you know, it used to all be about the nobility and rich people doing rich people things and, uh, then in the 20th century, we, we got into, well, what, what are, what's real people? Let's tell real stories. And so I think it's very important and I, and I don't want to knock it, but just personally for me right now, I, I'm more interested in getting at other things and telling other stories that aren't so literal and aren't. So I guess basically what I'm saying is that I'm a little off of realism and I'm a bit more interested in where can we go creatively? Um, you know, I, I'm a fan <clears throat> to an extent of like the absurdist movement and anything else. And I guess this is where I like one person plays too, is it's breaking apart that mold a little bit. It's asking us to suspend our disbelief a bit. And so thinking of what I, I like about theater these days, it's, I think it's just anything that uses imagination and creativity and in, not in a literal sense but is trying to get at a profound truth. And I think that's the thing that, that never wavers for me is that it's, is, and even with a kitchen sink drama is trying to get at something really profound that is hard to articulate, but makes us feel it. That I love. I absolutely love where it's like, I can't even tell you what this is making me feel, but it is making me feel something complicated and it's helping me understand that. That's where I, I think theater lives and is super exciting. And so any play that can do that uh, is awesome in my books. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. And uh, uh, I think it's a great uh, note to leave it on. And uh, have a great day and keep writing the wrong way. <laughs>